This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me on the phone, it is uh, the one, the only Grammy Award winning producer, guitarist extraordinaire, Bob Kulik. It's, uh, it's quite a long interview, so I'm going to get uh, right over to it. But I just want to say this before I do. People like me who do these shows, these podcasts, we are um, content creators. And a lot of the websites, the rock websites out there, will grab our content, uh, translate it, not translate it, but uh, transcribe it is what I'm saying, and they will create stories. And it'll say, in a new interview with such and such a website or such and such a podcast, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen said this. And it's great. Uh, you know, it does promote the shows, and so that's fine. But of course, they don't pay us. And fans, for the most part, will go to the sites and they'll see the headline, and that's it. They'll go, out oh, on the Mitch LaFon show, this was said, and that's it. And so I'm here to tell you, folks, please, please, don't just read the headlines. Support the shows. Shows like this one and many of the other podcasts, in fact, all the other podcasts, the hosts put in an incredible amount of time uh, contacting publicists, setting up the times, going back and forth, researching the the artists, the shows, the coming up with questions, doing it, getting down to the venue to do a live interview or getting on a phoner, editing, putting it all together, you know, making the magic happen if you want. And it is ultimately reduced to a headline on a website. And it's a little bit disheartening. So I'm telling you, there are some great sites and great podcasts out there, and there are too many to mention, but I am telling you, go listen to Talk To Me. Go listen to The Metal Voice. Go listen to Talking Metal. Go listen to Appetite for Distortion. Listen to this show. But listen to the show. Don't reduce it to a headline on a rock website. And it's amazing that, you know, you go to Twitter or Facebook and people are like, oh my God, Spotify doesn't pay the artists. You need 8 billion streams to make a buck. Well, you know what? Thanks to those websites, we could have 8 billion listens and not get a buck because they don't pay us. They don't, they take the content and they do not pay. And the only way for us to keep going and keep bringing your rock is for you to listen you know, some use, uh, what's it called, Patron or, or Patreon or whatever. I use dynamic ad insertions. And so it's by listening to the shows that it provides revenue. Uh, but this is not a thing about revenue. It's, it's, it, this is not about revenue, in fact. It, it's all about the fact that our work, our effort, you know, an interview uh, like today, Bob Kulik, the interview is an hour, which means I invested an hour doing the interview. I'm going to edit it all together, put it all together. Basically, I'm going to remove any dead air where, you know, there's pauses between. And that's going to take me another hour, two hours. And then there was the questions and then getting on the phone with Bob and setting up the time. So to bring you this episode is five, six, seven, eight hours. And that's the same for everybody who puts these shows together. It's an incredible amount of commitment and investment. And I'm doing two shows a week these days which means that I'm putting in a good 10 to 20 hours to bring you these episodes. And all the podcasts are doing the same thing. So to see it reduced to a quick headline on a rock website, not get remunerated, is disheartening. And it makes you think, do I want to keep doing this? Should I keep doing this? Yes, of course, there's, there's benefits. You get to talk to rock stars. You get to be invited to shows. But there's also a lot of drawbacks. We, we've discussed the gatekeepers on other shows, those people who just want to have power over you and make life unbelievably complicated for no reason. But anyway, I am here. I, I'm, I'm going to start hashtagging a lot of stuff that says support your podcast. Of course, I want you to support mine. But, but ultimately, I want you to support... Mark Striegel at Talking Metal, Jimmy K at the at the Metal Voice, uh, uh, Talk to Me, Appetite, Brando, and all of them. 
those are just the ones that are on the top of my head. Uh, I'm not, of course, uh, disparaging other podcasts. Support them all. Support them all. Because everyone who is doing this has invested their time to try to bring you something worth listening to. And and I'll, it's going to be my mantra to have it reduced to a quick clickbait headline and you move on and you don't listen to the show. <sighs> you know, it's it's difficult. So please, 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 please listen to the shows. Uh, it, it helps and it's 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 worth it. Uh, I think I do good interviews. Are they all great? Are they? I don't know. You tell me. But for the most part, I think I do great interviews. And I think it would be uh, nice. Well, maybe not nice. Maybe that's the wrong word. But I think it's important that you take the time to listen. And I know that some of you that are right here right now, you do take the time to listen. And I thank you immensely for that. Um, and, uh, well, there you go. And on that, uh, here is the one. The only Bob Kulik. We are speaking with the legendary guitarist Bob Kulik. He, of course, uh, has played with Wasp and and quietly behind the curtains with Kiss and a bunch of others. Uh, Bob, as we say in Montreal, bonjour. How are you? Bonjour. How are you? Good, good. So we are talking. Oh, hang on a second. Hang on one second. Uh, you know, I hate to correct you because you're, you know, uh, wonderful. Usually right on the money. Uh, well, you are a wonderful person. We know that. Everybody knows that. Um, but what I was going to say is that your introduction fails to mention my primary credit, which has nothing to do with Kiss. Ah, yes. Is, I'm a Grammy award-winning producer, and I produced Motorhead. I was the producer along with my co-producer, Bruce Bouillet, who was the guitar player in Racer X. Two of us were the producers for Motorhead between 1996 and 2004. 50 songs, including Whiplash, the Grammy Award-winning track, and the game, the theme for Triple H. So, yes, uh, Bruce Briet and I did all of those recordings. To me, that's way more important than I played with Wasp and I played with Kiss, because I played with bigger people than that. I would say Diana Ross is bigger than, bigger than some of that. Motorhead is bigger than some of that. Some of the other people I work with are bigger than some of that. I played on two number one hit singles for Diana Ross. That would be bigger to me than some of the stuff that is mentioned. Not that I'm, not that I'm uh, saying there's anything wrong with what I played with Wasp or Kiss, but to, to introduce me and leave out Alice Cooper and Lou Reed and the people that I've worked with that very few people get a chance to work with, uh, I think, you know, my, uh, part of my frustration, part of the reason why, you know, we are doing this interview is because I feel in a lot of ways that I've been minimalized by several circumstances that I've been in that have been tremendously successful, including all the ones that I mentioned, including Kiss. I'm no longer invited on the Kiss cruise because the circumstance is that this is a political circumstance. And my brother and Paul Stanley felt that it was better for Bruce to play alone last year, disappointing the fans. So I accepted it for what it was and have moved on and have moved on to all of the stuff that I'm doing now, including a new Christmas record, which I'm currently producing. Yes. And I will just contextualize my introduction by saying this. We are recording this October 14th. And according to Kiss, it is the day that Alive 2 was released, which, of course, in 1977, which, of course, includes you and the person I was talking to just before you. Uh, friendly chat, not an interview, happened to have been Frankie Benelli, who of course was in Wasp. So my brain was Kiss Alive 2 and Wasp. But yes, we don't want to minimalize everything else because you have contributed uh, greatly to a lot of the music I enjoy and a lot of fans enjoy. So, well, okay, let's let's let, let's let's cast aside the Kiss stuff for a minute and let let's talk about this Christmas album that you are uh, producing. You've done one before, which was absolutely right. terrific. Uh, who's, who is going to be on this Christmas album? And now we're talking October 14th, 2019. Is this an album that we see, you know, December 25th, 2019 that we can have for this Christmas? Or like most things, is there sort of a year run up and a setup and a whole this and that? And we're talking Christmas 2020. Well, we could have been ready for this year, except for the fact that 
uh, I don't make deadlines. I make headlines. So the label and I both decided we want the best record we can possibly make. Some of the artists that we want are currently busy. We wait. You know, I signed a 90-day contract. <laughs> it would have to be done by November 1st. So there's no way that I can be done. But everybody understands that waiting for some of the big artists that we're waiting for it totally makes sense. You know, and that waiting for Billy Gibbons, that makes sense to me. He's a friend and an awesome player. And he's going to do uh, a really cool song on here, an old oldest Reading Christmas song that I, I think people will be kind of blown away by. I'm not doing any of the songs that I've done before. There are hundreds of Christmas songs, and I've had a really great experience working these up. We have seven in production so far out of 12. The best news for me is that my production partner on this, an engineer, is Metallica's guy, Mike Gillies. He is an incredible producer, engineer, extremely musical, and he's got all the skills, editing, drum programming, objective ear. So I really kind of lucked out, not that Bruce Brier wasn't his equal, but to have somebody now and working on a... Kevin Churko's The Hideout here in Vegas. It is the best studio in town. I walk in there and I feel like it's 30 years ago and I'm back at Electric Lady or at Abbey Road or, you know, one of the OCAT studios, you know. So this has been a great experience for me. And, uh, you know, the, the people on here, you know, we, I've, I've reached out to a lot of my friends, some of whom have been on uh, the previous record, um, Doug Pinnock and George Lynch, people who I, you know, really, really... Uh, can't live without Vinnie Apathy and Rudy Sarzo and Tony Franklin and Greg Bizanet and Ray Lazare and James Lomenzo. Fabulous rhythm sections. And then, you know, somebody like Joel Hoekstra added him to the pile and Dora Pesh. So Dora Pesh actually is singing a song and it sounds amazing. Uh, I saw her play here in Vegas at Vamp a couple of months ago. And, you know, we did that song with Lemmy back in the day, Love Me Forever. And she still loves me forever. So, and as do I love her. She is such a sweet person and a tremendous talent. Um, so she sang one and I'm just working my way down the list. Just sent some stuff to Gilby Clark the other day. He's going to be playing. Michael Anthony is going to be playing. So, you know, um, Mickey D is going to be playing. Uh, got a whole bunch of different songs, special ideas, um, something different than the other one, but along the same lines reinventions of those songs wow i can't wait and uh just real quick here we're, i'm going to take a quick left turn into fanboy territory but you mentioned abbey road and i just interviewed paul mccartney's guitarist brian ray and i asked him the question that you asked me to ask him does paul mccartney and, and the band tune in a440 and the answer was yes they do so how's that for somebody over 70 playing it i guess the way it's meant to be played right it's pretty decent well Tonality-wise, you're hearing the exact tonality. Most bands, most people have tuned down to a half-step down, which would be considered, so if A440, if you were in E, so that would be standard E tuning, half-step down from that would be E-flat tuning, and a full step down from that is D tuning. So KISS is a full step down. They're in D tuning. And that that's drastic a full step is the difference between g and a it's and and you know the it, it's just makes it easier to hit the high notes obviously we're human beings our voices degrade so for paul mccartney to not tune down and be able to sing some of those songs where he's doing falsettos and screams and stuff like that just shows how incredible paul mccartney a living god without question uh, I urge people to go online and see the Stephen Colbert interview with Paul McCartney, where Colbert says to him, for those of us who don't understand music, it seems like magic. Is there an aspect of that in this? Paul McCartney said, what, we, what I know, what all musicians who have had some success really know is that it is magic. It is. When we finished God Save the Queen from Motorhead, it was magic. I was just it was hilarious right out of the gate. I told him, I said, you sing in this song. This was my suggestion. You know, Bruce Brier and my suggestion, you know, we, we, we did all we could 
to help a band that really needed somebody to offer some objectivity to their insanity. You know, and that's how we came up with the game, the theme for Triple H, one of the greatest vocal performances he ever gave. Time to play the game. <laughs> All of that. I did that with Bruce Brier. We did that. So, you know, there's Great all this stuff. stuff that is, yeah, all the stuff that's been hits. The song Sweet Victory that David Glenn Isley and I wrote and was used in SpongeBob. Yes, well, I'm going to get to that. Too. I'm going to get to that, but I was just going to mention that you also had done the uh, Butchering the Beatles uh, tribute, a head bashing. But uh, uh, before I get to Sweet Victory, which is uh, an incredible song, it came out somewhere around 2005, I guess it was, right? It's been, it's been a while. Um, Correct. You did mention uh, Bruce and Paul on the boat, and, you, and and we know that Bruce is a huge Beatles fan. Is the relationship with Bruce just a good brother brother relationship, or or has there been some kind of something going on since the whole boat thing? Because I I don't know. Maybe I sense that there's an anger there. Is that is that too far? Is that too personal? Is the is, are, is everything good with you and Bruce? Well, it depends what you mean by good. Okay. Uh, some people have relationships where they see their siblings or their relatives all the time, just by virtue of either uh, being close geographically or, or being close that they speak on the phone all the time. Um, after my brother joined KISS, there was a, a discernible change in his attitude towards me. And I blame Paul and Gene for setting bad examples for how to treat people. I'm just being honest. And so I've found over the years, you know, don't call me, I'll call you. You know, the cryptic, I'll speak to you in a few days. And I can't talk now. Um, I think the fact that we were in the same business, even though we're totally different. My brother was a replacement guitar player. He replaced somebody in Kiss. He replaced somebody in Grand Funk Railroad. I actually worked with Mark Farner and did his solo record. And I actually worked with Kiss first. He's kind of just following my footsteps. And I'm very happy for him that he's got a gig in Grand Funk. But the frustration really started from that Kiss show where we opened uh, the proceedings after the band did their acoustic sail away show. Uh, Bruce, myself, the band that I put together, uh, Brent Fitz and Todd Kearns, with no rehearsal, got up there and well, you heard it. Everybody heard it. What that told me was that this should be a band and that everybody should stop what they're doing and try one more time to see if this would work or plop it in there between Slash's gig if that was necessary. Brent and Todd were open for it based upon availability. My brother was not open for it. I had offers for records. I had offers for tours that I had to turn down. I wanted to get back out and play, and I thought playing this catalog would be something great because of the response from that night. But I realized that he's been kissed, and he's not going to change. He still worships Paul and Gene, even though, what is it now? What is it? Begging to try to play on their end of the road tour? I don't get it. I move forward. That's where I'm at. I move forward. Yeah. So I'm doing another record. I'm playing this Cruise Fest thing, and I have a set of songs nobody's heard played. I recorded or wrote 24 songs with Kiss. 24. 24. American Man, Larger Than Life, Rockin' in the USA, I'm a Legend Tonight, Down on Your Knees, Danger, Partners in Crime, Nowhere to Run, All of Paul's Record, Beaver to Bop, Bobby to Boop. So it was yeah. only one of the things I did in my life. But to be minimalized by these people and have people not understand why I'm not on the boat or have people not understand why I'm persona non grata is, is, is kind of frustrating to me. You know, I've spoken to Gene and Paul. I've spoken to Doc McGee. I've spoken to everybody about it. And, uh, it, you know, it's just they're on their own planet. And I wish them well. Yeah. And, uh, and I will Maybe. say though. Well, I'm just going to say this, uh, the the whole boat thing, uh, when the video started coming out with Brent and Todd and you, and it was so good and so refreshing and... and was not. It was not good. 
It, it was, was fucking great. It was great. It was fucking great. And yeah, and as fucking a great. fuck it, yeah. And I'm gonna say, as a fan, we know that Kiss are not gonna play those songs. And you can, you know, you can have all kinds of debates as to why they're not gonna play them, but they're not. And to see those eighty songs performed, and not only just performed, like you said, fucking great, but Todd's voice, man, he nailed it. And you guys on in the band nailed it. And and so it was exceptionally disappointing. I'm a fan. You know, I'm a fan. I've been a fan for forty years. If you said, I'm coming to Montreal with these guys, with Bruce and you and this, and we're going to play, you know, an hour and a half of Who Wants to Be Lonely and Naked City, I, I would have been in heaven. And so the fact that it didn't happen is is shameful or, or ridiculous. And and yes, they've, they're busy with Slash, but Slash was doing Guns N' Roses last year. So there was, there was an opportunity. And yes, he does. Well, but, but, but here's know. the thing again, like in my career. After a point, you know, I worked with Meatloaf for a huge artist, I might add, at the time in the 80s. We were playing festivals, opening for Whitesnake, going on between ZZ Top and Whitesnake. That's how big Meatloaf was. We did festivals. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, this this whole thing is, is just um, unfortunate because to me, it was God's signal, music God's signal, like the Dead Daisies, those guys decided to try to put something together, really cool cats who, who had, you know, lots of fans and, and lots of chops and, you know, lots of people who thought, wow, this is a great band, Karabi, Doug Aldrich. I mean, wow, you know, and they wound up playing a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, I had presumed that these guys would take a chance and at least try to squeeze this into the schedule because honestly, as much as I respect Brent and Todd, they're tremendous players. They're all about the music. In 30 years, when he's not touring anymore, I asked him, is he taking care of you? The answer was not the answer I wanted to hear. It was not. It Sorry. And, and No, it wasn't. And that's why I'm in that position, because I had didn't have a piece of this and that and the other thing. If I knew then what I, do, what I knew now, you think I would have just played on Kiss Alive 2 without any kind of piece of paper, without any kind of understanding if that goes quadruple platinum, I expect to be paid? No, never again. I played, this, I played unbelievably great solos that he couldn't possibly play because it was not his style. He never did overbends. Ask any guitar player. Ask anybody. Those were his best solos on, those, on that record. Objectively speaking, Kiss fans, blasphemy. How dare he say that? That's fine. You can love who you want. It's music. It's not a contest. It's a, it's well, a personal opinion thing. Some people love Steve Vai. Yeah. Others can't stand them. They prefer Billy Gibbons. I well, can only hear the, the slow notes. Well, listen, you're, you're talking to a Kiss fan, and yes, I love Ace, but side four of Alive 2 is brilliant. I love the songs, Larger Than Life, and it's just, it's, it's, it's just what it should be. Um, they, they opened they opened the door for me to play, as opposed to their normal format or most bands' normal format. You know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, chorus, out. You know, a, a a contemporary format for rock, metal, blues, blah 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 blah. Obviously, a band like Metallica, they don't they ignore shit like that. But in this case, some of the songs on that, there was more than just a solo. I play right from the beginning, All American Man. There's a whole melody thing, a harmony part. And then the solo section, there's some licks at the end. Same with Larger Than Life. It stops, I play. There's a solo, and they're long solos. This is not a, you know, like I laughed, you know, when I realized down on my knees is me. Why didn't I say anything about it? It's eight notes. Eight notes. No, I know. I know. know. They didn't let me do the embellishment that I wanted to do, nor did Blackie Lawless. Yeah. Uh, Play in these other spots. No, no, no. And I really wanted the end of the road tour to be a full celebration of every era of Kiss. And so I was hoping that we'd see some of the members come back. That didn't happen. But at least if they had put you and Bruce to open the shows and just say, all right, the first set's all this 80s stuff that we're not going to play, and then we come on and do our 15, it would have been magical. Not not that the end of the road wasn't magical as it was, but it just would have been extra special. Now, 
The other day we were talking on the phone and you were mentioning something about owning the masters. And, and did I understand right? You own the masters to Paul Stanley's solo CD or did I somehow mix up two things you were saying? No, no, you, you, you mixed up some things that I was saying. So, so, what? so I, am, I, I am the custodian of some of Paul's recordings, recordings that he gave me to transfer for him, which were demos from the early 80s which were recorded on a 12-track Akai machine. I had to rent the machine, find one, and then place the songs Crazy Nights, Reason to Live, Bang Bang You, Turn on the Night, etc., 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 onto what is now three hard drives. And here's why. One of the drives goes down, you have a backup. One of the other drives goes down, you still have a backup. The fire that happened at Universal, they lost thousands of people's recordings. I don't think they had backups anywhere else. The backups have to be somewhere else. That's how serious I am about my recordings. I must have 300 songs that I have the masters for. And it's all our friends. So, so All of them. Either their records, like Motorhead, their records or their singles or whatever it was. It's interesting to me. If I were a photographer, I wouldn't leave my negatives lying around. If I were a script writer, I wouldn't leave my scripts around. But all these bands recorded with me, it was never a follow-up. Are you going to take care of the masters? Or do you want to send me the masters? Only Brian Pereira from Cleopatra. He was the only one. Could you bring me copies of the masters? And when I spoke to him the other day, because he's the one who's doing the Christmas project with me, very fortunate to have someone who would provide seed so I could give birth to these babies. Serious. Without his money and without his trust in me, not a label who's like questioning everything and asking to hear roughs every day and going, I'm not sure about that. Somebody who respects me as I respect him. He's got all his shit backed up, triple backed up and found something I had lost and asked, you have it because I can't find it. It was twist and shout with Lemmy. I was pulling my hair out, but I don't have any hair. So I guess I wasn't pulling my hair out, but I was upset because all of the stuff I have of Lemmy is of the most importance. I speak to Lemmy's son almost every day. He's a dear friend, as was Lemmy. And now that this last recording that was missing has been found, I can take a deep breath. Yeah, and by the way, Brian Pereira, I've always loved Brian. He's just an exceptionally... Good dude. I remember when I started off in the business back in 96, 97, doing interviews, he actually would invite me down to the Cleopatra uh, factory or, or uh, whatever. The compound. The compound. It's the compound. Yeah. And, and they're I, still there, dude. And they I would still uh, at the same place with the same people. What does that say? Well, loyalty is a lot. And, and he would just say, you know, and, I, and let's, look, I was nobody back then. And he would just say, come on in. And he would sort of gave, give me a bag and say, just take whatever CDs you want. Just make sure you talk about them. And there was no reason for him to do that. Zero. And he just was. No, he's, 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 he's the real deal. Yep. He's a and, great guy. Um, there, there is going to be a chapter in my book just about Brian, you know, because, you know, we had arguments, we had fights, we had the celebrations, we had victories, we made money, all of it. And, and, and now we're best friends. It, it just goes to show me that the, the uh, knowing people from back then who have, you've worked with, who yet live and are doing what they did when you knew them back in the day, that's such a blessing for him to reach out to me. How about a Christmas record? I was oh, like, it really is. Synchronistic. Yeah, because I'd already started up on it. And so it was like I had no deal. And so it was like, how did that happen? You know how that happened. The music gods and synchronicity. You can make things better for yourself if you're a good person. This music that I make, as everybody knows, is for, is for everybody else. It's, it's to have, make people happy, to give people distraction. It's very important. Most of the people that I work with, like Lemmy and people like that, they're bigger in death than they ever were alive. So, and the people that dead. I was going to say, uh, I, I just want to get into this whole thing about masters because uh, there seems to be a perception that if you own the masters, you can do whatever you want with them, right? Universal owns the masters for this, so we're going to put out ten greatest hits. 
Is that how it works? Does that work for you? Like, could you take all this Motorhead stuff and say, I'm putting out a best of 12 tracks from the brew, the Bob Kulik Motorhead sessions. Can, can you do that? Or what sort of the well, legalities? Let me, let me see if, let me, let me see if I can educate your audience. There's several issues. A label like Universal, they will have paid for pick an artist, Steely Dan's record, Toto's record, just pick an artist, right? They paid for it. They collected their masters. Masters are stored at the label. When I used to have record deals with Sony and Enigma Capital, my masters were kept in their storage facility. You You know, the producer would turn the masters over to the big labels. Once the big labels stopped collecting the masters and it was left to single projects. So not Brian Pereira, because all of his stuff was organized. So, you know, hard and heavy and the tribute records and the compilations I did for him. He owns all that stuff, but I have the masters as well. And in that regard, I also own the original tapes they were recorded on. But I have no issue with Brian. He wants to use the stuff which we're doing. My intent was to safeguard all of the recordings, regardless of ownership, based upon the fact that most of this was recorded on Bruce Brier and my tapes. And that means we own them legally. Not fighting with anybody about that. I want to put this all into play. The only song that I would say that is different is Whiplash because I own it with Bruce Brier and the company that we made the arrangement for. Therefore, we own it and could re-release it or sell it because we own it. So the ownership situation, there's intellectual ownership, like a a photograph. It's not the person's camera, it's the photographer. In this case, it's the tapes. So again, I've double-backed up everything and in contact with people and, you know, they're, they're realizing the worth of what it is. And so they're coming to the table, but the reality is that even though I could release some of these, yeah, it would be a war. I don't want a war. This is beautiful music. This needs to be welcomed with open arms, not lawyers looking to make money. Gotcha. So, so, so those, those Paul Stanley demos, I'm just going to say those, Stanley demos those, those Paul Stanley demos, you can't just release that because that would, bring holy hell of, of lawyers and, and, and whoever else down on you. And it would just be, well, just not worth the trouble kind of thing. It's a a moot point. I would never do that. That's not me to save the tapes and then screw the people that I saved them for by just releasing them myself. Oh, contraire. I suggested to Paul, especially there was one song on his, uh, um, uh, second solo record, the demo of which is every time I see you around, I had Steve Ferroni play drums. Steve Ferroni is one of the greatest drummers out there. The pocket, it's a technicality, but the pocket in the song is way better than the pocket that is on the record with the band that Paul used. It's a matter of personal opinion and taste, but I played it for Paul. He definitely crapped his pants when he heard it. He was just like, wow, this is great. So I'm sure he'll be re-releasing this stuff. Um, And that's why I saved it because it could be used for a commercial. It could be fixed up as a duet. It could be used in a movie. It could be used in a TV show. It could be used for a commercial only, only with the multi-tracks. 90% of the commercials are done because they need to chop them up. And the, the instance that I had recently of a commercial that I wrote, um, they needed the stems. They chopped out all the vocals and only used the parts I wrote. So without the multi-tracks, you got nothing. Zombo, nothing. And so I'm the happiest because all the musicians, like Billy Sheehan, you name them, Richie Cotton, all the guys I talk to every day that are my friends, that are people that I work with, that are people who we make music together with, people that I love, people that are my brothers, people that share the same values that I have respect for the music they all say the same thing the 14 people on those recordings that you saved that would have gone because the format they were on was the 88 you could barely find them now we bought seven to get three to work so that lemmy ronnie dio jimmy bain 
Chris Squire, Randy Casillo, Pat Torpy, and all those other people, Clarence Clemens and all the rest could yet live because their music wasn't thrown away or left on a format that wouldn't be retrievable. Chris Squire, Ronnie Montrose, I have all those recordings, 14 people who are no longer here. That means everything to me. The ghosts of those people were in the room, dude, the day we, Bruce Brier and I took that stuff off. How could they not be? This is their legacy. So in answer to your question, I just want the music to come out. I've saved it to not just make money off of it, but to have it used. Because if this music isn't used, this is a abomination of a loss, especially the Motorhead, Paul Stanley stuff. And there's the WWE stuff. There's, there's some incredible recordings here. I was able to work with such a variety of people that it, 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 it's blowing my mind even because when I look at the list of who's on there, they're all bigger now. They're oh. all bigger now. Vince Neil was a star back in the day, but Vince Neil's way bigger now. Oh, yeah. Doug Kinnick was a star back in the day, but he's way bigger now. And wait till you hear his vocal on the most wonderful time of the year with Joel Hoekstra. It is positively mind-blowing. That guy is like Frank Sinatra. One take, Charlie. I'm like, Doug, do we have another take? Nope. I'm like, good, we don't need one. Was it fixed? Nope. Real talent doesn't need to be fixed. And that's what these tapes show. All this stuff was not fixed. Not fixed. Not fixed, not fixed, not fixed, not copy-pasted, not moved around. This is the real talent. That's why it's worth a lot of money, because everybody can share in this based upon what it really is. Music for the fans. Wow. Music for fans to enjoy. I want to make a duets record with some of this stuff. Can you imagine Ronnie Dio singing with Steven Tyler on Dream On? Can you imagine Ozzy singing with Lemmy on Desire? Can you imagine Alice Cooper singing with Roger Daltrey on No More Mr. Nice Guy? I have those recordings. That is great stuff. And by the way, that Ronnie James Dio version of Dream On that you did on that Aerosmith tribute, I guess for Cleopatra or Deadline back in the day, is such an incredible version. Um, now, we took a, a detour from uh, talking about uh, Sweet Victory. So let me just get back to that for a second. David Glenn Isley is on there. You did it with, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Eric Singer on drums, I believe. Um, Correct. Back in 2001, I had said 2005, but I checked it since then. It's 2001. Uh, talk to me about that song, because 18 years later, it sort of come back and it became re cool again, and and it, it's 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 an interesting song. It just keeps it keeps on. You know, it's like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps on ticking, right? Well, wait till you see what we have in store for it now. Based upon the fact that we have the masters, of course. And we own the song, of course, Dave Isley and I. We were able to supplement the mix with some other uh, instruments and add an orchestra to one of the versions. And we just put it out there on DistroKid, one of the services that they account to you directly. There's no label involved. As of today, 500,000 either Spotify or Apple Music streams. No gig, no tour. No video, no publicity, no articles, no nothing. Thousand a day, a thousand a day on the streams. Why? It's a hit song. Excuse me. It's an inspirational hit song. It was supposed to have been played on the Super Bowl. They played the intro and then they cut to one of the other artists. The reason they didn't play it is because there was an argument about, wait a minute, somebody's claiming ownership. How could you own this? If we have the masters and it's our song, what are you talking about? So it's turned into a, a bit of a kerfuffle. Lawyers, uh, Universal Music Group, these people, I'll just say it, they're chicken shit cocksuckers. They don't have any paperwork, but they have expensive lawyers who should all die horrible deaths. What do they do? We haven't received a penny on a song that is virtually a hit song. It was used in the SpongeBob movie Band Geeks. If you look on Spotify or YouTube, it's 24 million views. The record it came out on was the SpongeBob SquarePants Yellow record. 500,000 either Apple purchases or CD purchases. Not accounted to. This business 
the letter from UMG, it's like we're not even human beings. Well, we know we own it, so too bad, and that's it. What about your masters? You know what they wrote back? We don't need them. Good luck making a commercial. Good luck doing what we're about to do. We're going to get a big name artist to sing the song. Then look out. Look out. Because Steven Tyler or Glenn Hughes or Lady Gaga or James Hetfield or one of those people singing this song, this is going to be the biggest song again, going to be used on the Super Bowl. Look it up. Sweet victory. And I will add, I will add that Dave's vocal recorded back then, I believe it was earlier than 2001, regardless, was not fixed at the time, and nor did we fix it this time. That is what you call talent magic like paul mccartney said that's magic to write a song like that and have it live 20 years later it's bigger now than it ever was in the beginning and is going to get even bigger that's a sports song ready to go on the world series the super bowl anything you could possibly imagine sweet victory check out the song we're going to make some clips of just a minute or 30 seconds it's it's probably the greatest song that I co-wrote. I can't think of another song other than the game that has had that kind of response. Um, the game, obviously, by virtue of the fact that Triple H was able to make a visual out of this by spitting out the water during the theme part, which was my composition and Bruce Brier's idea. That was our idea. They had nothing in that spot. And so we heard the well, we had to fill it with something. I didn't well, want to do a big solo. But if you look carefully, the two times the band played it live, Astrodome, Staples Center, WrestleManias, 24 million people watching. I was there. What were you doing, Bob? I was playing guitar. Why were you playing guitar, Bob? Because I'm the one who played on the record. Phil only played the little licks. The rest of the guitars on that song are me. The bass. That is me. What's on there, the them, is the drums and Lemmy's unbelievable vocal. That is one of the greatest vocals, which was sang separately on two separate tracks. It's all about the game on one track and how you play it is on the other track. That's how he was able to sing it. That's why he couldn't sing it live. Triple H came over to me. He was just like, can you make Lemmy sing it right? I looked at him like, you can't make Lemmy do anything. What are you talking about? I said, I told you before, this was recorded on two separate tracks. He doesn't have enough breath to sing it. If you watch the tape, you'll see it. He's only singing about half the lyrics. And Triple H is rolling his eyes at me. It's like, I explained it to you. You just don't understand. He, like most people, thinks that that band walks into the studio and they press record and poof the boona, there it is. You and I both know that ain't what it is. Those guys gave me half of a song. Bruce Brier and I stayed there all night on Christmas Eve and cranked that fucking thing out. Biggest theme of themes. Biggest ever. Triple H's wife told me he cried when he heard it. There you go. I've spilled it all. Mitch, you son of a bitch, you yeah. got all that out of me. I got that all out of you. And, and uh, the one song that uh, made me cry that you've had a hand in is uh, Naked City from Unmasked. That is just beautiful. I love it. It's a great it's a great song. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna play it in Miami, so please come. Yeah, so please come. And and we're at forty minutes, so I'll just ask you one last thing here, or a couple more things. But uh, and I just want to give a I just want to give a plug to Cruise Fest. Yeah, please go ahead. Come October twenty eighth and 29th, Ace Fraley, Sebastian Bach, John Karabi, Lydia Chris, Big Rock Show, John Hart, everybody you want to see, and I'll be there too. And I'm gonna play. My set is going to be great. Please come. Thank you. Okay, on to the last question. Yeah, last one. Uh, but you mentioned lawyers, and uh, of course, uh, right away that made me think of uh, Asshole, uh, the uh, Gene Simmons uh, record, because, uh, well, could have been called Lawyers, that album, right? Um, talk to me a little bit about that and getting on Gene's vault. How How mm-hmm. is that for you to, to have all these songs, Too Young, Sentimental Fool, Seeing as Believing, and all that sort of resurface and come back on the vault and... Uh, being invited to, to to participate, and I'm assuming that Gene gave you a vault, right? Lucky you. I wish he'd give me one, but I'm not so lucky. Yeah. But uh, you can have mine. We can scratch out what he wrote. Okay, no, sure. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I actually did get a vault. It was I, I got a vault and a second Kiss Alive two 
a triple platinum, which I'd never got, you know? So Can not only didn't I get paid, not only didn't I get paid, you know, and I kept their secret for 40 years. I didn't tell anybody. They, they owned up that I played on that stuff. Well, so, okay. Get, well, it, let, let me, let me ask you this. Question about Gene. Yeah. It answers your question about Gene. Um, these songs were from so long ago that I thought that we would just get together and revisit them and bring them up to date a bit. You know, I thought they could be better um, than what they are. So him using one of them on his asshole record, I was just like, didn't even call me to ask me to participate. Didn't even call me to tell me he was doing it. This from the same guy that argued with Paul about Paul not letting me play on Gene's solo record. But he's playing on mine. He can't play on yours. So here he is. It's like, let's do something together rather than me just say yes. So I made an arrangement, if you can call it an arrangement. Can I use these songs on my record? Yeah. Did I get paid a penny? No. No. Answer's no. So you and I have made as much money from Kiss then we're, we we've made the same uh, bank from Kiss Records. No, 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 no. I, I, I was paid uh, okay. for, for performing on those songs. But okay. for instance, like Kiss Alive Two, there was never any more money. Yeah, like a bonus. Like, dude, you did this right. Here's a bonus. Ah, uh, great. Are was, you still there? Yeah. Okay. Thought yeah, I'm still there. I stopped for a second to take a breath. Oh, okay. I thought I lost you for a second. I was I was like, wait, wait. What, where? And then I looked at the. No, I'm still, still here. I went to the doctor the other day. I'm okay. Good. Good. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Uh, I was just going to get back to a live too. And I, I think you've addressed this rumor before, but there, there was this rumor in the kiss world. And I know it's so exceptional that kiss fans make rumors up. I know, I know it's, it's rare that on a live too, uh, all the sort of fixes, the, the post-production work, uh, guitar parts on, you know, side one, two, three, were done by Bob Kulick. Any truth to that? Half truth, one song, no truth at all. Did, did you did you punch up some stuff on on the three sides? No, um, Ace would have done that. This way, it would sound consistent. His attack, punching in somebody else playing with a different guitar, they ain't never going to say. It. And to redo the whole thing, his feel is slightly different than mine. It is it, no, and they. they, they Paul is a really good rhythm player. One of them, one of them fixed their own shit. But when it came to those solos and the guy's lying in the other room and he's, you know, they're working these people to death and the guy's like, he wasn't in the mood to play. And they're like, we got deadlines. And I think also they wanted to send the message that you're replaceable. All of us should know that we're replaceable. We were all replaceable. The only one, actually, I take that back. John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix and Lemmy were not replaceable. Nor they can't Paul McCartney. Right. True. Yeah, there couldn't there couldn't be a Beatles without John Lennon, and now George Harrison. It couldn't be. So you know, in certain cases, a replacement won't work. And in most cases, to my opinion, the replacement doesn't work. All these bands shuffling like a like a deck of cards because of the ugly reality of the business survival selling merchandise, selling CDs out of their trunks because the labels no longer exist except for the top tier, you know, Lady Gaga and Guns N' Roses and whatever the top of the, you know, music businesses now, those artists that are still selling records. There are country artists that still sell records. There are people that sell vinyl, a lot of vinyl in Europe and Australia and places like that. I'm looking forward to going back to Europe. I want to, what I want to do, Mitch, is I want to take that big rock show band there. It's so exceptionally good. And maybe augment it with a couple of people and do my whole set. All Paul songs from his solo record. Love and Chains, Together is One, Wouldn't You Like to Know Me, Move On, Tonight You Belong to Me. Add all the Kiss songs, Partners in Crime, you know, I'm a Legend Tonight, all of that. It's 15 songs. 16 songs. You could just play those. Open for somebody or just do Kiss conventions or Kiss shows like that. I think this is... That's why I'm so looking forward to this show because I think it's going to really work great. Oh, it's going it's going to be it's going to be terrific. So uh, on that, uh, we're at 45 minutes. Let's let's keep something else for for a part two. But as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, always great stories. And ditto, ditto. You know, we're friends. Yep. That makes it a lot easier. Yep. And, and 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 that's why the thing about this that people probably don't realize either is that. 
because I was a touring guitar player when I started and I played with Alice Cooper and I played with Meat Loaf for like seven years and I played with John Cale live and I played with Diana Ross live. But then I got bitten by the studio bug. I wanted to be a producer. I didn't want to, since I couldn't work with one band, you know, I worked with Lou Reed. I worked with Patti LaBelle. It was not one moniker to hang on me. It wasn't like most bands. It's like, you know, uh, uh, Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses, Tony Iommi, Black Sabbath, Bruce Kulick, Kiss. I, I, did, I didn't have one of those. Meatloaf was like, man. So I decided I want to work with everybody. So I found a partner uh, who had a studio who was brilliant, Billy Sherwood, who's now in Yes and Asia, uh, a dear friend of mine. Uh, we did Jack Russell's record together. We wrote songs together. Uh, we work, we work with Lemmy together as well. We work with a lot of big artists. I have all the respect in the world for, for Billy. He's a extremely smart guy and, and uh, a consummate musician. His dad was a, uh, a jazz player from back in the day. He grew up, he grew up with it, you know, five years old, he's playing piano seriously. So, uh, you know, having a studio made all the difference in the world just to have a place to play, a place to invite musicians. So these people would come down. It wasn't just the session that I was booking. We have to be out of here now. We would, we would hang around and talk. They would bring songs to play me. Some of them asked us to mix stuff. Some of them became my friends like Doug Pinnock. You want to hang for a few minutes? You want to smoke a joint? Sure. The guy poured his heart out to me. I poured my heart out to him. We're the same age. He's 70 years old, dude. I'm going to be 70 in January. And yet, look at him. He's a superstar. Superstar. The guy is incredible. He is incredible. Getting up there and playing with Kenny Aronoff and Joe Satriani doing that Hendrix stuff. I played with him at Lemmy's birthday party, you know. So I'm lucky these people are my friends. I'm really blessed. So for all of the business fast and greed and corporate stupidity and nonsense and Banks of lawyers who are on retainers doesn't cost them anything. Fortunately, I met somebody in Las Vegas who's a music guy. He's a he's a guy who appreciates the arts. He's representing me on some of these cases now, and he's just he just would say it to me. It's an abomination that these people don't respect their own stuff, let alone you. I've done this my whole life. This is all I've ever done. That's why I look so good. Music has made me happy. The music is where the happiness is. Businesses, businesses like having to deal with Donald Trump. Seriously, it is the most dysfunctional, ugly, selfish business. Worse than any business you could imagine. Seriously, well, the amount of thievery. Ask, ask, ask uh, Steve Lukather. Ask Doug Pinnock and George Lynch. Ask them their stories. How. Where's the money that you made? I laugh. I look online. Somebody says, says you're worth $2.3 million. I'm like, why do people do that? They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. If I had $2.3 million, I wouldn't give a shit about any of this anymore. I'd be just living in Hawaii. I wouldn't care anymore. Seriously. But all that money, that $2.3 million, that's what I should have from all the shit that I did. So now is payback time. A lot of these people are going to have to pay now or their master's. Do you know where your masters are? I guess not. So there you have it. Stay tuned for part two. Stay tuned for part two. And by the way, I'll just finish on this. You just have to look at the uh, universal fire and the fact that they didn't tell anybody for almost a decade or, or even more. It just goes to show you what kind of business it is because you don't. They burned their own stuff. They've taken their own masters. We can't afford for this uh, uh, storage facility anymore. Anything that didn't sell 500000 toss it. Seriously, it's it's yeah. masters, two inch, two inch tape. Come on, that's disgusting. I, w- I could never do that. I was sick over losing that twist and shout vocal with Lenny with Greg Bizanet and Scotty and twist and shout. You can imagine what that sounds like with girl background vocals. Well, you've got yeah, it back. It's so there you go. It's coming out, yeah, right? Exactly. exactly. It's coming to a record near you soon. One there. way or the other, somebody's got to hear this. Yes, we do. There, there you know, we go. That's, that's, my, that's my intention is to get all this out there for the audience. Spotify it, listen to it, buy it, 
do what you want, but most of all, respect it. Respect that these people made this music when it wasn't fixed, when it wasn't like what you hear today, with these bands on stage with their inner ears. We played loud. We, we made the vibe. This is just bullshit. I go to these shows in Vegas. It's just like, it's bullshit. It's just bullshit. You know, all of that stuff with, with inner ears and all that, really? I, I can't feel it to play like that. I can't. I can't. They wanted me to do rock walls. I'm like, inner ears? They're like, of course. Pass. I need to, I need to, I need to feel my guitar hitting me in the body. That's what I need. I need to feel it. The business is so different now. It's just totally different. Just the way this record's being made as well. Hardly anybody's coming to the studio. I have to send stems to everybody and then edit the shit out of it to make it all work. Fortunately, when you have talent, you can make it work. And no one will listen to this and not think it was organic performances. That's how organic it sounds. Back in the day, I would live to go into the studio. Who's coming in today? Vinnie Caliuta and Billy Sheehan. And we're going to carve that. Oh, we're going to do that song, that, that Van Halen song. Right. Holy shit. Light up the sky. They're going to play that. And then I got Ingve to play guitar on it. Ingve, Billy Sheehan, Vinnie Caliuta. Show me three better musicians that fucking tearing loose than that. And so that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that kind of talent, that kind of stuff. That's what I have. I have all of that. So seeing people ooh and ah over Vinnie Caliuta playing with Jeff Beck now, they're like, you know this guy? Vinnie Caliuta once said to me, C-O-L-A, cola, Iuta, I-U-T-A. Spell it, C-O-L-A-I-U-T-A. Right, Bob. He was a good friend of mine and one of the greatest drummers I've ever heard in my life. We have a dat tape of him playing. You listen to it, you think it's two drummers. I'm serious. Somebody said to me, so... Who, who's playing on that? Which two drummers? I said, that's Vinnie Caliuta. They said, that's not possible. I said, well, uh, uh, yeah, it's possible. He did it. I was here when he did it. So yeah, I've been, you know, Mitch, I've been really lucky. I wish you, all of you, you, any of the people that are this kind of fans could come to my vault, to my studio and open up some of these. On Desire, we found, let me, we didn't use it on the original version, but we actually found where he says, Ozzy, you're the man. We're going to start the song like that. Oh, it's insane. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, and... it's, 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 it's all the heart in the world. It's all, all the heart. The beginning of uh, the game. He's, he's, he's laughing. He's just like, oh, it's a piece of cake. Time to play the game. Seriously. Seriously. All brilliant Somebody stuff. Somebody hears that. They're going to shit their pants. They're going to shit their pants. All brilliant stuff. And we, we got to keep some of it for part two. But yeah, all brilliant stuff. And and uh, oh, it, it's 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 amazing. Sorry, I got carried away. But there's you know there's a lot going on. And I know. You know I look. I I could just shut up or tell one person one thing, another person something else. I find that the truth wins out over all. I just talk the truth. And so if it's I said things that I shouldn't have said, too bad. It's the truth. If somebody's feelings got hurt, I'm sorry, but too bad. Think how my feelings are, being doing what God would want. Save those recordings, protect those recordings, preserve those recordings, worship those recordings. Like what if nobody had saved Beethoven and Bach? They were us back then. I'm sure they're happy their music is being played. I'll be happy to know someone's listening to the game when I'm dead. I'll have a smile on my face in heaven, knowing that somebody's listening to that and going nuts. That means everything to me. Everything. Okay? Absolutely. And and I'm going to go listen to Naked City right now and go nuts in honor of you. See? All right, you do that. <laughs> and then that live version is going to set, the, uh, set it up right because their version was not what I had in mind. It was so you're going to hear what I had. Little, little pop rock, but uh, on that, uh, merci, monsieur. Thank it's you, pop, sir. We're going we're to we're give it the teeth that it deserves. Good. Unmasked could use some balls. A little more bottom and a little less pop, pop flair, but still, still well, a lovely know, album. Was, yeah, no, it's a really good album. Paul was enamored uh, with the producer. And the producer hated every song Gene brought to him. And it was, there was, that was a pretty epic struggle there. Uh, you know, Paul trying to pull the pop thing, realizing if we have a hit single, things will be a lot easier. Can't say he's wrong. But to me, they, 
subsequently were able to find ways to make records and have reason to live and stuff like that on there that would that did the job that were as good as a hit single if not a hit single uh, reason to live and all that stuff you know that, look they've been able to hit the, the nail on the head a lot yeah and that's why they're still going uh there we go thank you sir already bon, bonsoir thank you so much always a pleasure bonsoir happy thanksgiving y'all you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafon rock talk 